Hi, I'm Dr. Fatima Rodriguez. I'm excited to announce the third annual Going Back to the Heart of Cardiology in San Diego, California, December 3rd through the 5th. The goal of this conference is to learn new skills and network with our peers. To register, visit medscape.org slash heartofcardio22. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey friends, it's Amit Goyal. I'm so glad you joined us for this very first episode of a brand new and important series, the Cardiators Cardio Oncology Series. Over the course of these episodes, we will take a deep and comprehensive dive into the management and care of cancer patients who have or are at risk for cardiovascular illness. We hope that you all develop an appreciation of why this is such a special population and the importance of cardio-oncology both as a clinical subspecialty and an area in need of further scientific exploration. This incredible effort was made possible by our series co-chairs, Drs. Dinu Belanescu, Giselle Suero-Abriu, and Theodore Donison, our incredible episode leads. For this episode, Dr. Manu Mysore of the University of Maryland, our esteemed expert faculty who've donated their time to teach us, like Dr. Bonnie Key for today's episode, where we will discuss the need for cardio-oncology as a subspecialty, and grant funding from Pfizer with unrestricted funds to make this series possible. We are proud to collaborate with individuals and institutions in our ongoing work to democratize cardiovascular education. Without further ado, let's dive right in and get nerdy. That is exactly right, Amit. Cardio-oncology is spreading aggressively as one of the most exciting new fields within the cardiovascular space. Joining us on today's inaugural episode, Dr. Dinu Belanescu, Internal Medicine Chief Resident at Beaumont Hospital in Royal Oak, Michigan. Dinu found his passion for cardio-oncology by doing a one-year fellowship in cardio-oncology before residency in Professor Cesar Elenescu's prolific lab at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, Texas. He's also a graduate of the CardioNerds Academy and currently serves as faculty for House Jones, as well as interim chair of the ACC Medical Residents Working Group. Hi, Ahmed and Dan. Thank you so much for the kind words and the kind introduction. I'm simply thrilled to learn more about cardio-oncology by biopsying the subject in the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology series. There are just so many unanswered questions surrounding the cardiovascular care of cancer patients as they've traditionally been excluded from major cardiovascular trials. But fortunately, research in this space is just growing by the day, a fact that's been validated by the emergence of journals dedicated specifically to cardio-oncology, such as JAK Cardio-Oncology. We're privileged to have Dr. Manu Mysore leading today's episode. Manu is a recent cardiology fellowship graduate of the University of Maryland and just joined the same institution as faculty for cardio-oncology. Manu is also former CardioNerds ambassador. Manu, thank you for being with us today. Thank you, Dinu, for that wonderful introduction. It's been a pleasure to be a part of CardioNerds as an ambassador, sharing wonderful cases. And now to discuss my true passion of cardio-oncology as I join faculty under the guidance and mentorship of Dr. Brian Barr, one of the attendings at the University of Maryland and one of the premier cardio-oncologists. What an honor it's also to lead the first episodes of the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology Series. Today, we'll be learning about how and why this new field came to be and whether there is a clinical need for a field dedicated to the cardiovascular care of cancer patients. Who better to learn this from than our guest expert today, Dr. Bonnie Key. Dr. Key is a Founders Associate Professor of Cardio-Oncology 
at the University of Pennsylvania, where she also serves as director of the Penn Center for Quantitative Echocardiography, scientific director of the Thalheimer Center for Cardio-Oncology, and director of the Penn Cardio-Oncology Translational Center of Excellence. Among her many titles, Dr. T also serves as chief editor of the journal Jack Cardio-Oncology. Dr. T, thank you so much for joining us today and for opening this Cardio-Nerds Cardio-Oncology series. Thank you so much for having me. It is truly terrific to be with you all today. And I just want to take a moment and congratulate each and every one of you for all that you've accomplished in the strong community that you've created through CardioNerds. You've promoted so much learning, and it is really remarkable for me to see. So congratulations and thank you. Thank you again, Dr. T, for joining us. Let's start off our discussion today with a case. Mr. Timo is a 39-year-old man with a history of diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, for which he received treatment with ARCHOP and mediastinal radiation approximately 20 years ago. During his treatment, he was diagnosed with non-ischemic carbiopsy, for which he was started on carvedilol and spiralactone. After initial response, his lymphoma relapsed, requiring right therapy with an eventual allogenic stem cell transplantation in 2009. His disease unfortunately relapsed again, and he was started on an antibody drug conjugate known as brintuximab, which he's currently on. He now presents to the cardiology clinic with shortness of breath on minimal exertion. And of note, his last echocardiogram performed in 2019 had showed a recovered LV function. Manu, thank you for taking us through the history for Mr. Mo. But let's take a step back for a moment. We just covered a lot of oncologic history and acronyms that I personally am just not familiar with. It's been a few years since I've taken my oncology rotation. Dr. Key, how much familiarity do you think we as cardiologists should have with common cancer therapies? And where does this knowledge really fit in within the realm of our clinical practice? That's such a great question. I think in terms of the acronyms and drug names, I agree completely that it is akin to learning an entirely new language. We all are acutely aware of the cardiotoxic effects of doxorubicin, HEF-REF, HEF-PEF, also arterial stiffness. Cyclophosphamide is also associated with cardiomyopathy and heart failure, and vincristine also with endothelial dysfunction. And sometimes can appear somewhat to be like an abbreviation alphabet soup. But just to take a brief pause before I get into your larger question, just for those of you that are wondering out there what these acronyms mean, RCHOP is rituximab, cyclophosphamide, doxorubicin, and vincristine, as well as prednisone. RICE is rituximab, ephosphamides, carboplatinum, and etoposide. These are alkylating agents. These are associated with vascular disease, endothelial dysfunction, as well as heart failure and cardiomyopathy. Of course, stem cell transplant, patient stasbos stem cell transplant, are at increased risk of the development of cardiovascular risk factors. There's a large body of epidemiologic data there that supports that, led by Saramenian, Eric Chow, and many others, as well as the increased risk of development of cardiovascular disease. Brentixamab, anti-CD30 antibody. In terms of the rate of cardiovascular adverse events in phase three trials, 11% versus 8% in those not treated with an anti-CD30 antibody, so not profound there. I'd say, but with the mediastinal radiation, we know also significant adverse cardiovascular effects, coronary disease, bowel disease, HEF-PEF, HEF-REF, arrhythmia, and so forth. But to get to your larger question, in my view, cardio-oncology is really ultimately about multidisciplinary collaboration with oncologists, the multidisciplinary care team, pharmacists, 
advanced practice providers, nurses, the patient, and their caregiver. And as a cardiologist, humbly speaking and honestly speaking, we will never know as much about the most effective oncologic therapy for our patients as compared to the oncologist. And in my view, it is up to the oncologist to determine that and us as cardiologists to work collaboratively with them. I think it is, though, critically important for the cardiologist to have a basic foundational knowledge and understanding of these therapies so that we can most effectively communicate with the team and so that we can take the best possible care of the patient. I think it's important for the cardiologist to also have a strong knowledge of the potential cardiotoxic effects. And this, in my view, is based upon biologic plausibility, based upon the mechanism of action, what we know about clinical trial data and epidemiologic studies, as well as we know about FDA reporting. And as the field is in constant evolution with new drugs constantly being approved, what I think is important for the cardiologist is that he or she is equipped with a toolbox in terms of how to find that necessary knowledge. And I think also the cardio-oncologist has to be prepared to always be learning. I think in terms of obtaining this necessary knowledge, we in Jack Cardio-Oncology have tried to collate this knowledge through the journal and also through live courses like the American College of Cardiology Advancing the Care of the Oncology Patient. And also through initiatives like this that you are all promoting through podcasts and the dissemination and generation of evidence-based knowledge. I'll say just as a, another practical point, in Jack Cardio Oncology, we've actually launched a how-to series in an effort to educate both the cardiology and the oncology communities on common therapies that are used and their potential cardiotoxic effects. And we Deliver this in bite-sized content, 2,000 words, really straightforward, very practical, evidence-based knowledge. In summary, to answer your question, in my view, I think it's about equipping yourself with the toolkit, with the how-to, and it's also critically important. I think that's why all of us are in medicine, too, because we want to be constantly open to learning, wanting to learn, and knowing where and how to find the necessary information. Wow, Dr. Key, what a beginning to our cardio-oncology series. Now, the fact that you're able to detail those acronyms off the top of your head just comes to show how much there is to know when managing cardiovascular disease in cancer patients. It sure sounds like it would be almost impossible for the general cardiologist to know so much about cancer and its treatments. Plus, it's quite obvious that a multidisciplinary approach of these patients, especially through a close collaboration with oncology, is much needed. To me, the main point here is this need for collaboration to best care for our patients and leverage our respective expertise with basic familiarity of the other field. Now, nowadays, recent advances in oncology, such as newer generation chemotherapy and immunotherapies, in many cases turn cancer into a chronic condition. Dr. Key, I would love to hear your thoughts on the impact of this paradigm shift in oncology on cardiovascular risk and morbidity. Thanks so much, Dino. You're exactly right. Driving home those points about multidisciplinary collaboration. And there is a paradigm shift as well. I mean, I think if you look at just plain old statistics, numbers, in 2022, it's estimated that there will be over 18 million cancer survivors, and that's in the U.S. alone. And over time, we know that number is expected to grow. First, our oncology colleagues have gotten so good at discovering and delivering life-saving therapies. Cancer can now certainly be labeled as a curable disease. But even those cancers that are non-curable 
have become more of a chronic condition as patients, even with metastatic disease, are living longer. And in the longer term, with aging, with exposure to potentially cardiotoxic therapies in both the short and long term, with combination therapies, with the changes in lifestyle that occur secondary to cancer, and with the development of cardiovascular risk factors in our cancer patients, i.e. hypertension, obesity, hyperlipidemia, and so forth, there is really a growing epidemic of cardiovascular disease in this population. Moreover, I think what's compounding this problem is that cardiovascular risk factors in our cancer patients and cancer survivors may be undertreated and undermanaged. There have been multiple studies that have demonstrated this, including a recent retrospective analysis led by a mentee of mine at the University of Pennsylvania, Lova Sun, where she published in JAMA Network Open a retrospective analysis from the VA of men with prostate cancer. The very high burden of cardiovascular risk factors, for example, like 79% at hypertension, and over half had undertreated risk factors. Why is this also so important? Because we know that cardiovascular risk factors are associated with an increased risk of the development of cardiovascular disease in our cancer survivors. That's even greater compared to non-cancer comparators. That's a seminal study that's Armenian-led that uh, he published in JCO a few years ago. So really, as cardiologists, we have our work cut out for us. And I think important take-home messages as we you know, have this paradigm shift is treat the modifiable cardiovascular risk factors and treat the cardiovascular disease. And I think there is really also an emerging body of science out there, both epidemiologic and basic mechanistic, that are looking to really understand this overlap between cardiology and oncology Again, not just from an epi perspective, but also from a basic mechanistic perspective. Dr. Chi, those are wonderful things that you mentioned. And just to rephrase, it sounds like it's most important to treat both the underlying risk factors that seem to play a vital role in both cardiology and oncology. And it's, as it said, it seems oncology and cardiology share very many of the same many risk factors. And so the relationship is almost like a two-way street. I think another thing that you focused on, which I think was very important to note, is that a lot of our disease risk factor calculators don't really focus on oncology or malignancy as main contributors to cardiovascular disease, and that's something that we need to focus on. You know, that's exactly right, Manu. Given the high prevalence of cancer, it's clear that all cardiologists should be aware of the strong link between cancer and cardiovascular disease. We've established that cardio-oncology is a field that naturally evolved from the incredible developments in oncology. So Dr. Key, what type of conditions do cardio-oncologists manage and what does the patient population look like? Those are great questions, and Dan. And before I take a deep dive into that, I just want to speak to Manu's points. He's absolutely right that many of the traditional cardiovascular risk factors don't account for malignancy and that there's a call to action, a call for science really, in the field to remote science and cancer-specific risk scores. It has been shown, and this is work led by Jennifer Ho that we published in Jack Code Oncology, that increasing ASCBD risk score is not only associated with an increased risk of cardiovascular disease, but also an increased risk of incident cancer. So there is clearly an overlap. For those of you more interested in this topic too, about that epidemiologic overlap, I would encourage you to go to our March 2022 issue of Jack Code Oncology, where we dedicated a mini focus to this topic, but great points. And then to address Dan's points about 
types of patients and what my patient population looks like. I'll just start off by saying, and I think, of course, you all know this too, but taking care of patients is just an extraordinary and really humbling privilege. I'll just say I have learned so much from my patients about resiliency, about grit, about kindness, humility, caring, and just their very generous spirits. And it's just been it's been an amazing journey, and every day I just feel more and more grateful to be taking care of this unique patient population. I think in terms of the patients that make up my clinic, you know, I see various cancer types exposed to multiple potential cardiotoxic therapies, including, for example, anthracyclines, HER2-targeted therapies, radiation, tyrosine kinase inhibitors, including BCR-able TKIs, VEGFR TKIs, those exposed to immune therapy, androgen deprivation therapy, other hormone therapies like aromatase inhibitors, and patient staspose transplant. And I will see patients prior to their cancer treatment initiation, during, or also after uh, their exposure to potentially cardiotoxic therapies. And the way I like to approach cardio-oncology clinical care in this setting is at each of these stages, I define what are the priorities here? as a cardio-oncologist. I think prior to cancer therapy, uh, to me, an important priority is to identify patients who are at increased risk of the development of cardiovascular disease or cardiotoxicity and do everything we can to mitigate that risk, i.e., for example, aggressive control of cardiovascular risk factors. During cancer therapy, I think it's important to monitor patients so that we can ensure that they receive their necessary cancer therapy. And then after cancer therapy, I think it's about improving and promoting long-term health. A lot of discussion about risk factor modification, management of cardiovascular disease, and also lifestyle modification. And I think a critical role for the cardio-oncologist is that he or she work collaboratively to help ensure patients can receive their necessary cancer therapy. Dr. Key, thank you for going over that. And I couldn't agree with you more about how much these patients teach us about resiliency and just thinking through as a structural interventional fellow, I come across people with cancer therapy, cardiotoxicity, primarily in the form of radiation heart disease. And so I'll tell you a brief story. I was uh, consulting on a patient, I'll leave out some details for privacy, but for a structural intervention. And this is a patient who was relatively young and she had a history of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, which had uh, treated with uh, some chemo regimen at the time. We weren't exactly clear on the details, but unfortunately had recurrence 10 years later, had radiation therapy, thankfully with a cure, had open heart surgery for valvular heart disease, and was seeing us for a redo valve and valve intervention. And so, you know, I looked at her CT scan, looked at her labs, and thought through what we would do, what we could offer, her risk, etc. And in the middle of speaking to her, it just dawned on me. It's like, oh my gosh. So the time then she was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and she was undergoing this toxic chemotherapy, she was 16 years old. So I asked her, I said, yeah, ma'am, what was it like having cancer and going through all this when you were 16? I mean, gosh, I, when I was 16, I was in high school. I didn't know any better. And she said, you know, for me, I was young and dumb and I just did what I had to do, but it was really hard on my parents because I was stage four and they thought it was terminal. And so my mom actually paid my new boyfriend at the time to leave me because she didn't want me to become attached to somebody and then have both a heartbreak and having to deal with cancer. 
you know, again, I'm just trying to think through what her mom was thinking at the time. And I said, okay, so what did your boyfriend do? And she turns to her husband. She said, he's sitting right there. You know, and I was just thinking through my mind, like, you know, what life was like as a teenager and what the two of them have gone through together. He's been with her through thick and thin. And these life stories are the life stories of our patients and their whole families. It really just gave me a lot of awe and appreciation for what she's been through. I mean, I think there's so much that we can learn from these patients. Um, but, you know, to be fair, our oncologic colleagues next door are taking care of legions of patients with all sorts of therapies, chemotherapy, immunotherapy, radiation therapy. But not all patients receiving cancer therapy or having cancer develop cardiotoxicity. What are some of the strategies for risk assessment in these patients in terms of potential cardiotoxicity so we know that we should look out for them? Yeah, that's a great question, Ahmed. And I, I also just want to thank you uh, for sharing that very wonderful patient story with all of us. And that it is stories like that. It's patients like that that motivate me and motivate, I think, our community to really advance science so that we can generate actual knowledge and generate the necessary body of evidence so that we can make lives better for our patients. And it also motivates and drives me to further the dissemination of knowledge and make sure our community, our healthcare providers know everything possible so that they can take the best possible care of our patients. And I hope that we can do that through all of the initiatives that we're doing, including this podcast. But to get to the details about your question about the strategies that we can use for risk assessment, in my view, I think it really depends upon the therapy and the potential cardiotoxicity. Of course, if we're talking about evaluation for heart failure or cardiac structure and function, we do a lot of that, as you may know, through ECHO. ECHO is accessible, it's portable, it's non-invasive, there's no radiation. And of course, you're also likely well familiar that with ECHO, uh, there's been a strong body of evidence and research trying to evaluate sensitive measures of cardiac function and mechanics. Our own research group at Penn is very interested in that in terms of using ECHO as a predictor of the development of subsequent cardiotoxicity. Other imaging modalities such as MRI are used for tissue characterization, particularly in conditions to evaluate for myocarditis as well with immune checkpoint inhibitor therapy. Stress testing or cardiac cath up your alley, of course, may be done if there are concerns for coronary disease or ischemia. We also use stress testing to assess for diastolic function. I think there's a lot of HEFPEF out there that we're just not picking up on and not detecting adequately. I personally do also use coronary calcium as a further means for risk stratification in terms of helping guide decision-making uh, with statin prescriptions and so forth and degree of lipid lowering. In cardio-oncology too, a hot area or an area of, in terms of emerging modalities or modalities increasing in use, I'd say are functional testing such as VO2 because it's associated with prognosis. VO2 can be used to understand the potential cardiovascular basis of fatigue. Greg Hunley has led a large initiative nationwide to understand and use VO2 to try to understand if there is a cardiovascular basis for fatigue. It's also used, of course, to define functional capacity. Biomarkers are an area of ongoing research. Our own group at Penn, again, is very interested in biomarkers and using biomarkers to identify patients at the increased risk of development of cardiotoxicity. And in that world, I think it really depends upon the patient population. For example, our data would support that NT-proBNP and ambulatory breast cancer patients exposed to anthracyclines and 
trastuzumab, NT-proBNP there is associated with the risk of development of subsequent EF declines. Genetics, also STEP variants, DCM variants, and clonal hematopoiesis of indeterminate potential, they remain an area of active investigation in the whole world of cardio-oncology in terms of prediction of cardiovascular risk and prediction of heart failure. And then there are other clinical tools that we use commonly in clinical medicine, electrocardiogram, of course, lipid profile, clinical risk factors, age, other measures, blood pressure, BMI. But to the point that was made earlier by Manu, we do want and our goals are to develop uh, additional cancer-specific risk scores that are relevant to our population. For example, a large effort in my own research group is to identify a risk calculator, to identify patients who are at increased risk of the development of left ventricular ejection fraction declines and heart failure with anthracyclines, for example, and using a risk-guided protection strategy. Wow. There were so many knowledge pearls throughout all of that, both data and personal practice information. Can't even stress probably half of those, if not even more of those points. This is amazing. Let's return to our case. A young patient with recurrent relapsing lymphoma, heart failure with now recovered ejection fraction, on a novel anti-cancer treatment, now presenting with shortness of breath. On an initial workup, he was found to have prolonged sinus pauses on telemetry and evidence of inferior wall motion abnormalities on echocardiogram. Dr. Key, what does your defensive list look like in this sort of situation, and how would you approach any further workup? Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for asking. I'm curious if the patient was on cardiovascular medications, as a side note, because that's also a big question in cardio-oncology, how long patients should be on neurohormonal therapies and so forth. But hopefully he was on cardiovascular medications such as neurohormonal therapy, I do believe that it is important to continue. It's a long, detailed discussion, of course, with the patient. But specifically in this case, with inferior wall motion abnormalities and prolonged sinus pauses, I think top of the differential is coronary disease, particularly with his mediastinal radiation exposure. Also, he's tasked for stem cell transplant, so he's at increased risk of the development of coronary disease as well as heart failure and so forth. The arrhythmia, it could be in a sequelae of radiation exposure as well possibly related to coronary disease, but I'm curious and excited to see what happened and what you guys did. Yes, thank you so much, Dr. Key. And just listening to you go through your differential diagnosis, it just shows you why a specialist can be so helpful in these particular scenarios. The variety of conditions that may occur with cancer and all its treatments, conditions that the cardio-oncologist must manage is simply mind-blowing. But Manu, what actually ended up happening with Mr. Chemo? Yeah, so when we were taking care of him, we were concerned about a multitude of things. Some of the things are on the top of the differential that Dr. Key mentioned, including radiation-induced coronary artery disease. We also wanted to make sure we weren't missing out on some other disease conditions that are probably less likely, including infiltrative disorders or even myopericarditis. So he actually went to the cath lab and was found to have significant osteal RCA stenosis, for which a drug-eluting stent was placed. His radiarrhythmia resolved. He was eventually discharged and followed up in the outpatient setting where he factory lymphoma and is actually currently disease-free. Just phenomenal, Manu. Thank you for taking us through that. And so glad that he's doing better under the care of your team. Um, and, and, you know, just going through his case really also highlights all the different presentations and manifestations of cardiotoxicity in patients who were treated for lymphoma. 
We'll definitely return to these subjects of cardiotoxicity and radiation-induced cardiovascular disease over the course of the series, but this discussion does bring us to an important point of surveillance for cardiovascular disease with cardiotoxic anti-cancer treatments. Are there any current cardio-oncologic practice guidelines that we should look into for surveillance of patients who've received or been exposed to various anti-cancer treatments? That's an excellent question, Amit. And I'd say a multi-level answer to that question. And this question also gives me an idea for a piece we should commission in Jack Carter Oncology in terms of trying to summarize all the guidelines and make sure that's accessible and available to everyone. But I'd say that cardio-oncology is certainly a growing field. I think the body of evidence to support actual knowledge really continues to grow, and it's really exciting to see. I'd say there have been many expert consensus, some that you'll find in Jack Carter Oncology and some in other journals too, and I'll take you through some of these. There's a lot of published work on monitoring of breast cancer patients receiving HER2-targeted therapy in the British Society of Echocardiography, as well as the British Cardio-Oncology Society led an expert consensus slash guideline here, which we published in Jack Cardio-Oncology. There have been other kind of expert consensus published also in our journal on childhood cancer survivorship and also radiation-induced cardiovascular disease. And each of these also discuss monitoring. I'd say the Children's Oncology Group does have guidelines published in terms of their monitoring guidelines of adult survivors of childhood cancers focused primarily on anthracyclines and radiation exposure. ASCO, published back in 2016 in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, proposed strategies for monitoring of patients with cardiac dysfunction. This was also an expert consensus. There is an international initiative and effort in the uh, survivors of childhood cancer group to publish harmonization guidelines and to update these in terms of cardiovascular surveillance. The AHA, American Heart Association in Circulation, has published a number of scientific statements as well. For example, in exercise, in hormone therapies, and biomarkers as well. These are all, these are expert consensus. The American Society of Echo many years ago now published an adult echo monitoring or image monitoring guidelines, and they will be publishing a pediatric monitoring guideline soon, I think over the next year or so. The American Society of Nuclear Cardiology will also be publishing a statement on the use of CT as monitoring strategy and other imaging modalities in cardio-oncology. And perhaps what's most awaited for is the ESC, uh, European Society of Cardiology, will be updating their cardio-oncology guidelines to be released August 2022 uh, at ESC this year. So we're all looking forward to that. So a lot of knowledge out there I think might be confusing, and this is what's motivating an idea in my mind, and I thank you guys for giving me this, is just to try to harmonize this for the community so they know how to move forward. Dr. Key, it's been so amazing to hear about how this field transitioned from niche to mainstream. I remember getting some very weird looks as I was interviewing for residency just about four years ago. When I told interviewers that I wanted to do cardio-oncology, I would just get the weirdest looks. If I were to interview today, I don't think that would be the case anymore with the continuous expansion of these societies as a response to this incredible growing interest in cardio-oncology, things are definitely a little different. Now, we learned throughout this episode about the links between cardiology and oncology. We discussed shared risk factors between the two, and we defined the cardio-oncology population and their conditions. There's clearly an urgent need to know more about how to best care for these patients. 
But conducting high-quality trials in this space is quite difficult simply because of the nature of the population. But fortunately, platforms for disseminating this type of research are emerging, including as part of one of the most read cardiovascular journal families in the world, Jack. So Dr. Key, what are some of the challenges in designing clinical trials and formal clinical practice guidelines in cardio-oncology beyond what you just mentioned, beyond these expert consensus statements? And how do you assess the plethora of studies that you must receive as submissions to Jack Cardio Oncology? Well, Dino, I just want to say I'm so happy that you decided to continue to pursue cardio oncology because our community needs passionate, invested, smart people like yourselves. And it's really the young people, you all of you that, that drive each of us forward every day. And we know that you are our future. So I'm extraordinarily grateful to hear that you went past those funny looks and are just so passionate about the field. I think to get to your question about the challenges and what we're looking for in the journal, I think to give you a little bit of background, I'm a physician scientist and I direct and lead a patient-oriented research program in cardio-oncology. All of my studies, the large majority are patient cohort studies and patient clinical trials, phase one and two. And we enroll a lot of patients at the time of diagnosis because I believe fundamentally that it's the early changes in cardiac function that may be important. And it's that exposure to the cardiotoxic therapy in that time period that may be important in terms of the biologic mechanistic underpinnings that are occurring at that time. So that initial treatment time period is very important to understand the changes that are occurring. So oftentimes we are approaching patients at the time of diagnosis. And I'll say, and as we can all empathize, it's a very mentally and emotionally stressful time. And there's a lot happening a lot, a lot of testing that's going early on, and patients are really, honestly, readily overwhelmed, as any of us would be. And I think, as any of us would be, too, we feel very vulnerable at that time. And and I, it can be very, very challenging. And even during the pandemic, of course, there have been a lot of data to suggest that cancer control trials, such as those in cardiac oncology, in particularly suffered in terms of patient enrollment and recruitment. But what I'd say is to overcome these challenges, really multidisciplinary collaboration is absolutely critical and fundamental. And also putting the patient at the center is critical and fundamental. I think we have really been able to develop a wonderful working relationship with our oncology colleagues and our patients by doing our best to work collaboratively to help ensure that they can receive their necessary cancer therapy and also by letting them know that we're there for them. We're there to support them, to see them through this, and we're there. There are many also in the field that have been wonderful partners as well, including the NIH, very interested in cardio-oncology studies and very supportive, as well as the HA. And those partnerships with key stakeholders also make a big difference. I think as it pertains to key questions and designing clinical trials, it's important for us as a field to define the cardiotoxic effects of cancer therapies in the modern treatment era and patients being treated today. I think it's important to identify those patients at increased risk of the development of cardiotoxicity, i.e. those high-risk patients, so that we can target the most effective cardioprotective strategies according to risk and move past a one-size-fits-all treatment strategy. It's important for us also as a field, if we're going to institute cardioprotective strategies, to define what is the optimal timing of initiation and for how long should patients 
beyond these. And again, I think in all of this, it's critical that we meet the needs of the patient, we serve our patients, and make things as easy as possible with them with really open lines of communication with the patient and with the provider. You asked also about Jack Cardio-Oncology, and it has been a tremendous honor and a privilege to serve as editor and to be in receipt of these wonderful original research papers and to see the investment and the enthusiasm and excitement and support of the community. I think in terms of our guiding principles, we've tried to root ourselves in principles of excellence, rigor, and community with a focus on patient-centeredness. And in each of the pieces we evaluate, we ask, is this scientifically valid? Is the question of interest, is this potentially impactful? What is the potential for this work to move the needle forward? And what is this potential for this work to impact the clinical care of our patients? Because that's ultimately what we want to do with our science. We want to generate actual knowledge so that we can improve the care of our patients. Thank you so much for that, Dr. Key. And you're really paint a landscape of a field that's burgeoning and growing and the way you describe the current literature and then the way you describe where the field is going in terms of research is really exciting and definitely tells us about how much work there is to be done in the cardio-oncology space. Fortunately, dedicated cardio-oncology services and training programs are emerging throughout the country, but the numbers could be better with the recent survey suggesting that only about 51% of healthcare institutions in the country have a dedicated cardio-oncology service. We will discuss this issue on further episodes, but we'd love to hear your thoughts as a big stakeholder in the field. So Dr. Key, where do we go from here and what are the next steps in the development and implementation of the cardio-oncology field? Dan, thanks so much for giving me the chance to answer that question. I've a lot about where I feel the field needs to go in terms of cardio-oncology. You know, what do I think are the priorities, both scientifically and also from an educational perspective? I think scientifically and as it relates to clinical care, I think we need to advance the paradigm of personalized medicine to improve individual patient outcomes. Again, I mentioned this before, but move past the one-size-fits-all treatment strategy and really personalize cardiovascular risk prediction, risk stratification and institution of cardioprotective medications. I think we need to increase our understanding of the intersection between cancer and heart disease. We talked about that some from an epidemiologic standpoint, but there is a rich body of unanswered questions out there about the mechanistic overlap, including the role of the immune system and the role of inflammation. I think it's also critical for our field to define the role of technology in advancing care. We all know how much time we spend on our devices and in the EMR system. But how can we leverage that? How can we leverage that technology so that we can make lives better for our patients, i.e., for example, promote physical activity or nudge physicians to, per, to treat blood pressure more intensively? And of course, I think in another important priority for the field of cardio-oncology and for the field of medicine and for all of us in life, I think, is to work together to overcome healthcare disparities and provide equitable care that's also accessible and serves the needs of a diverse population. I think in cardio-oncology also, and we've discussed and touched upon this as well, is that we need to implement effective care models that are focused on advocating for and supporting our patients through the long term. And something that I think is critically important that we need to devote a lot of energy and resources, and again, we've touched upon this, is strengthening the pipeline 
of young investigators, young clinicians, and really the multidisciplinary care team. And one of my goals through the journal, through our work, is to really focus the international community on innovation, on collaboration, and a, a true patient-centeredness. Dr. T, those are amazing goals and ideas for the future. Clearly, it's an exciting time to be working in cardio-oncology. Dr. T, before we end our episode today, in typical cardio-nerds fashion, we always have to ask, what makes your heart flutter about cardio-oncology? Yes, thanks so much for asking. When you first said, what makes your heart flutter? I thought, uh, too much coffee. And everyone who knows me knows that I coffee really keeps me going. <laughs> but in terms of what makes my heart flutter about cardio-oncology, I, I love asking questions and finding answers. And that really drives me and I'll say makes my heart flutter science. Asking questions, finding answers. I think patients also, as we've discussed today, patients drive the work, all the work that we do. And I think also training the next generation, physicians and scientists, my mentees, talking with all of you today really puts a big smile to my face. So I wanted to really thank you all, each and every one of you, the voices we heard today and the voices that work behind the scenes to make this possible. Thank you for the extraordinary privilege of talking with you and talking with your entire community. You're doing terrific work. And again, congratulations. Well, Dr. Key, it's good to hear that we have something in common beyond the passion for cardio-oncology, namely a sincere love for coffee. Now, what an incredible start to our cardio-oncology series. It was just so inspirational to hear your compassion towards cancer patients with cardiovascular disease, their unique population with specific issues that maybe by working in the cardiology field, we're not so sensitized. But clearly, when you work with these patients, you develop the sensitivity to other types of issues, maybe on a more personal level than when somebody comes in with chest pain, like we heard from Amit's story from earlier. Dr. Key, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. We all have a much better vision of cardio-oncology and its role within modern cardiology. You made us so much more excited for the rest of the series, and we look forward to continuing our deep dive into this incredible field throughout the CardioNerds Cardio-Oncology series. Thanks, everyone, and stay tuned. Boop. Boop.